Friends, happy Thanksgiving. And nothing says happy Thanksgiving like the message from Zephaniah. <laughs> or the last part of Matthew 26. I actually thought about titling my sermon, Damned, Doomed, and Destroyed. But I was afraid you wouldn't come. And yet there is something so essential in this season where we are moving into Thanksgiving and we are moving into Advent and to Christmas and all that comes with that. And as those of you who are Anglican Christians know, our liturgical calendar comes right up alongside that. And we are coming to the end of the season of Pentecost. We have had a whole season to get ready for the coming of Christ. And now in Pentecost, we are building toward that Sunday, next Sunday, known as Christ the King Sunday, when the whole world will bow and understand the good that Christ intended. And so as our holidays and our liturgical calendar do a little dance, I want to look at Matthew 26 today. And in particular, I do want to address some of the problems in that passage which cause us to shut off so that we can hear the good news that is there. This passage from Matthew occurs right before the Passion. That's important. Holy Week is about to happen. Christ is about to pour himself out for the sake of the earth and for the sake of us. And he has just a minute to do his final teachings. And they're apocalyptic, and they're about the end of times, what we call the day of the Lord. And that is what Zephaniah is very focused on, the day of the Lord, which is going to surpass both in terror and glory, anything we can imagine. And so Jesus, in these final stories, is getting his disciples ready for his departure. Think about it. He knows he's leaving. He needs to entrust to them his very self. And the good news of the gospel today is that God trusts us. It is mind-blowing the degree to which God trusts us again and again to bear the fruit of his kingdom. And so if you don't hear anything else today, hear that. God trusts you. God has gifted you. And there's a way that your actions will further the kingdom of God. So in these three stories, one last Sunday, one this Sunday, one next Sunday, the ten bridesmaids, some had their lamps ready, some didn't. The parable of the talents, some invested their master's property, some did not. And then next Sunday, the judgment of the nations, the sheep and the goats. You get this sense of consequence, the winnowing, the separating out, the declaring of what is righteous and unrighteous, which belongs to Jesus and not to us. And so let's just look at this story now. We know it very well. A master gets ready to leave and he entrusts talents, which at that time would have been enormous sums of money. But he entrusts his property to these slaves, goes away, and then we see what each slave does. The one who received five talents multiplied by the, the talents and got ten. The one who received two got two more. And the last slave was afraid. That's key. The last slave was afraid, so he hid the talent and gave back to the master what was his. In the first two cases, the master returns, commends them for what this good deed they've done, and to the last one, his response seems kind of harsh. Throw him into the outer darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
That's one of the things we're going to talk about in just a minute. But that's the, that's the thrust of the story. What have we done with our master's property? So let me disarm a few things before we go much further. The first thing which maybe we don't hear, but which can turn people off immediately is the master-slave dynamic. That language is problematic. And yet, if we water down that language, if we use language of servant, it doesn't communicate the theological impact. And so the NRSV properly has retained the language of master-slave. Because what the writer's trying to say is, how mind-blowing is it that the master entrusts his property to slaves, that would not normally happen, and upon their faithfulness would invite him, them to become part of his family and to share in his joy. That distance from slave to child of God needs to be there so we can see the distance we have traveled from our, in a sense, our primitive self to who God intends us to be. The second issue is that piece of dramatic inequality. Take from the one who has nothing and give it to the one who has more, and even what that one has will be taken from him. I can't hear that today without capitalism, the lens of our current society, and the haves and the have-nots. And there's almost a sense in which we say, that's just the way it is. The rich become richer, the poor become poorer. Deal with it. That's not what Matthew is intending. What Matthew is talking about is a good, sound business practice. That those who are in sales, who sell successfully, get more sales. And those who don't, don't. Dallas understands this. You understand this. If you perform with what you have been given and you multiply and amplify, you will be entrusted with more. So that's the sense of it. We'll, what will we do with what God has entrusted us? It's not meant to um, confirm income inequality. And then the last part about being thrown into the outer darkness. I suggest we not dismiss that because there is a message there that Matthew is trying to get to us, which is judgment belongs to God and our actions really matter. So I don't want us to wipe our hands of that. But I will point out that Matthew alone is unique in ending almost every story that way. Luke and Mark talk about the judgment of God. They talk about Christ the King. But only Matthew has that formula over and over again. They will be thrown into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In biblical study, when you have an author who keeps using kind of a ritual formula that the other Gospels don't seem to have, you have to ask yourself what's happening in Matthew's community. And the suggestion is that in Matthew's community, there is a crisis because the good people are mixed with the bad people. The wheat is mixed with the weeds. And there are some in Matthew's community who are deeply concerned about this unrighteousness, this impurity. And so Matthew and his community resolve that by making it clear that judgment belongs to God, but make no mistake, in the fullness of time, our deeds will be known. And so you have to wonder what the crisis was in Matthew's community, that ambiguity, that ambivalence about it all being mixed together. What's interesting is if you look at Jesus' life, Jesus was pretty comfortable in the ambiguity and the mix and the mess. 
In fact, it was the disciples who were always trying to go further, to be purer, to cause the Samaritan woman to be silent, right? They're always trying to purify their context. And what does Jesus continually do? Invite in the outcast, invite in the tax collector. He disturbs the categories because he knows the kingdom of God is way bigger than the disciples can imagine. So we don't dismiss Matthew's um, concerns, but we understand them in the context of his community. So how is this message good news? As I said at the beginning, it is profound the degree to which God trusts us. And in fact, we're doing a class right now in the chapel, our um, final class is today at 10. And Philip Yancey can't believe, in spite of our failings, the way that God continues to trust us and to give us freedom to choose well. Millennia worth. All you have to do is look around the world today. Look at the decisions, look at the wars, look at kind of human sin. And you would ask yourself, why doesn't God just take this in hand and clean things up and move on? And Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, points out that the, our free response of praise, our free response of love, our free response of joy to God's joy is so important. It's so hardwired into the resurrection and the redemption of creation that God will never rest in giving us the choice to amplify the kingdom of God. Jesus trusted the disciples. He left it in their hands with the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They had not proven to be especially successful at this. And yet what's remarkable is after Jesus leaves, something happens to them. They get a taste of this trust. They know it has been entrusted to them and they are faithful beyond words. We are partakers of that trust and of that faithfulness. So I invite you to think about ways that you are and are not being trustworthy with the gifts God has given you. I know you. I have seen you, and I have seen your faithfulness. I see your presence at worship where you remember that God is God and you are not. I have seen your curiosity in our classes as you seek to learn and grow in the faith. I have seen you serve in Dallas, developing relationships with those who are easily forgotten. And I've seen you give, give in abundance to our annual giving campaign and to our capital campaign and beyond the money. You have been faithful with a few things, and you should hear God saying to those who have been faithful with a little, I will give them much. And so I invite you into that awareness that if you have been faithful with God's gifts, you can expect to be given more to tend. Receive it gratefully. And then here's the kicker in this story. When the first and second slaves have doubled their master's property, the talents. What does he say? Well done, good and trustworthy friend. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into my joy. A slave is being made a part of the family and gets to share in the master's joy. Christ came and redeemed creation 
so that we might be heirs, inheritors of God's joy and glory and grace, and that we might share with Christ in his kingdom. That is mind-blowing. It is good news. And I call you to receive that gift of trust. We're imperfect. We'll make mistakes. But in time, with our small choices, we will amplify the gifts of the master. Amen.